<laughs> please, please be seated. Yeah. Welcome this morning. So, uh, yeah, the, when the cat's away. Right? <laughs> All right. Well, good morning. We are... Good morning, good morning. Um, we are halfway through this year, being July. I don't know if for you the year is half full or half empty, but there it is. Uh, if you recall, it's only six months ago that we started into this year. And uh, I figure in a group this large, many of us probably attempted a New Year's resolution. Uh, trying to add some kind of thing to our lives that would uh, heighten our sense of devotion or improve our character. Or maybe it was a commitment to cut out some kind of bad habit. And at this point in the year, I figure for any of us who've tried to do that, there have been many moments where we've fallen flat on our face. Uh, moments where we have slipped, where we have... Uh, bumped up against our own weaknesses, our own frailties, our own limitations. And I believe Paul's passage today speaks to this issue. Notice how he begins, for I do not understand my own actions. Paul himself doesn't get it. It's confusing. We have these internal impulses to do what is good and right, and yet we are self-defeating. And he's, with all of his brilliance and all of his study, starts off this reading with, I don't understand. And notice what he does throughout this passage. I do not do what I want. I do the thing I hate. I, I do the thing I do not want. I'm not able to do this. And he flips and flops these phrases in such a way that we, we experience the very same confusion through his writing that he himself has expressed at the very beginning. Life is confusing. All of these internal mechanisms create a situation where we are confounded and conflicted internally. We are confused beings. And what Paul does is he spells out his own experience of it, and we can very much relate with him that we try to do what is good and right, and we wind up doing what is wrong. That we try not to do that thing that we know is wrong, and yet we wind up doing that very thing we hate. This is all based in the universals, of Romans. When he begins Romans, he tells us we are all created by God. All people are. And what that means is we get to go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, where all creation is good and the pinnacle of creation is humanity, man, created in the image of God, very good. And so in each and every one of us, we have this impulse born out of being created in God's image to do good things, to do things that are morally right. And yet, as soon as we turn that page to Genesis 3, we, we learn Paul's other universal, that we are all fallen. And so this 
image-bearing that we have and that impulse to do good in light of the good way that we were made means that we are self-defeating moral agents. That the moral will we have is broken. We ourselves are marred beyond recognition. When I studied theology, uh, my theology teacher said we are like cars, beautiful, wonderful cars, maybe Italian-made. And yet we are wrecked and crashed to such an extent that no repairman can fix it. That is our state. And why we find ourselves year after year self-defeating in these great ambitions we undertake. So, some of you are probably like me and you've given up even making a resolution at the beginning of the year. We know it's bound to fail. So that's our second universal. God, crea- God created us all. We are all fallen, which means we have fallen short of God's glory. God in his holiness is so far beyond us that we ourselves as sinful creatures cannot enter into his presence because we would be obliterated. We would be incinerated because his holiness would blast out any of of that sin that comes into his presence. So it's a dire situation we're in. And this leads us to our third universal, that we are all born under Adam's curse. So it would be one thing to be fallen, but just to be able to live together, I suppose, with, with this fallen nature, but it actually tends towards death. It is a cursed life that we live, all of us. And we are born into this world with these three universals, and it is overwhelming. And this, this is what Paul explains in a very personal way, that he finds that when he wants to do right, evil is right at his elbow, confounding him. And in his members, the very parts of his body, he finds himself captive to the law. And he leads to this exclamation in verse 24, wretched man that I am. And it's an exclamation that we could all state. Wretched woman that I am. Wretched child that I am. Wretched man that I am. And then he asks this question, who will deliver me from this body of death, this body born under these universals. The desire to do what's good and yet the inability to fundamentally do it. And notice what he says then in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the answer. Sunday school answer, Jesus. (laughs) But what does it mean? Which is why we need to very quickly move over to Matthew, our gospel reading for today. And we get the answer, but we, we need to continue this deep plunge into our fallenness at the beginning of our chapter. Jesus notes that it's not just an individual problem. It's a, a communal problem. All people together as a society as nations, as families, any grouping that we have is also marred by this fallenness. So he asks this, but what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces playing to their playmates, and they they chant to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. 
we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. This music that the children are playing is being played before others who don't know which dance goes with the right tune. And this is very much a picture of how this heavenly song resounds and we're not resonant with it. We don't dance the right dance when God plays this heavenly song. And notice how it plays out in two main figures. <clears throat> John the Baptist comes, eat, uh, I'm sorry, neither eating nor drinking. Here is a man whose sense of devotion and care to carry out his mission led him to a life of deprivation and abstinence, to not eat, to not drink, to not enjoy the best that the world has to offer. What a great man. Wouldn't he attract followers who say, oh, wow, there's godliness right there. But what do people say? He must have a demon. The heavenly song is resounding in John the Baptist and people don't know the right dance that goes with it and so they misinterpret John the Baptist. Well, hopefully somebody else can come along who's singing a different tune. Then they'll get it, right? And so the Son of Man comes enjoying the fullness of life. He eats and he drinks and he enjoys all the wonder of, of worldly pleasures. And the people should get that, right? But notice what they say. They accuse him. Look, a glutton and a drunkard. And who is he eating with? Tax collectors and sinners. Ah, the heavenly song is a different tune this time. And people aren't resonant with it. They don't know the right dance that goes with the right tune. And so this generation doesn't get it. A whole people group is not in tune with the Lord's song. And they're misinterpreting these two figures. Yet Jesus, in verse 25, shows that he knows the heavenly song and he knows the right dance that goes with it. If you can bear with this analogy. <clears throat> he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He, he and the Father are one. He is the incarnate God. And so, of course, he, he knows that heavenly tune. The heartbeat of heaven resounds in him and he knows exactly what's going on. And because of that, his understanding can pierce through the hiddenness of God's plan to reach people who are at enmity with God. And so notice what he says next. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This revelation from God through the Son to people who would be saved. And so he calls out, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This language, just like Paul's language did, takes us back to Genesis 1-3. through 3. 
There once was a time when mankind had communion with God in the garden. And they had rest for their souls. And they could enjoy the fullness of God's good creation and walk with Him and commune with Him. And yet, in the curses of Genesis 3, we know that man and woman must labor all the days of their life. All the days of our life is heavy, burdensome labor because this curse weighs down on us. And so Jesus calls us from this life of burden and toil to come unto Him and enjoy anew that rest that we once had in the garden so that we may commune with Him. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. That we can take upon ourselves this new burden, this new task of following after Jesus to come to Him and to cling to Him ever so desperately. And so there are a few responses that I want us to consider in light of the fact that we have this impulse to do good and yet we lack the power to do it. And yet Jesus provides that power to now follow Him along this path of holiness. And so I want us to consider two responses. One that's very personal and one that gets at this uh, larger group idea. The first one is to avoid distraction. And I think uh, very fondly of of, uh, C.S. Lewis. He wrote this book... uh, uh, a classic of the last century called the Screwtape Letters. And it is a correspondence between an older demon and a younger demon as the older one teaches the younger how to tempt his charge. And in this, the older demon repeats this refrain over and over to use distraction to keep his charge's mind from the most important thing. And this is a lesson for us to to remember is that all things can be used against you to distract you from the most important thing. A, uh, anything, a, a phone or, or a, a devotional thought even can be used against you to distract you from the most important thing, to cling desperately to Jesus who calls you to fellowship with him. I... I think of medieval piety, and I thought of this because of John the Baptist, how, how they would deprive themselves. They would fast or they would be silent for a while to gain that separation from worldly things, to cultivate that inward, small, still voice of the Lord, to be responsive to it. And so um, I think about this in a world of distraction, to find those places of silence and solitude where we can commune with the Lord. Um, I, I teach at a, a small Christian school, and I, I teach U.S. history to seniors. And one of the books that I assign to them is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. And the reason I re- have them read this is to gain some leverage through his critique of contemporary societies. We go through the Cold War and civil rights and Reagan and, and the dot-com boom, I like to use him to analyze and critique what's going on as we become an entertainment-based society. 
And as we read through this book, I challenge my seniors to this project. And it's related to this kind of device that I'm sure a lot of us have. And I say, can you spend 24 hours without any screen time? And I up the ante and I said, if you can do 48, I will give you a candy bar. (laughs) (laughs) So this past year, my students wanted to negotiate with me. And they said, if we do 72 hours, could you let us out of the final exam? (laughs) I said, sold. (laughs) And so all nine of my students did 72, 72 hours without their devices. And it was funny to see how they had to negotiate that, to have a parent click on one of one of their apps so they can keep their snap streak going or, or whatever it was. And after this, they have to write a responsive paper. What was their experience? What challenges did they encounter? What things did they notice? And a lot of them said similar things that it's like their senses became alive to the world around them. And, and they noted how much of a distraction that the devices were. And so this is, if this is true of teenagers today, how much, how much more is it true of us today? And so we need to be aware of how distraction can keep us from clinging tightly to Jesus who calls us to himself. So that's a, a negative, avoid distraction. But a positive is to enjoy the fellowship of believers. Um, let our hearts resonate with each other this heavenly song. It is really hard to live life alone trying to follow Jesus. Notice that he himself brought 12 men around him to walk with him. And so whether it's a small group or a prayer partner or somebody that you can go to for accountability where you work together with hearts and souls knitted together to work out your salvation in Christ. So these two things uh, coming from, from our passages today. It is a hard life to live. And Paul and Jesus both are pressing on this sore point halfway through our year. Not to renew our commitments from January 1st, but to actually renew our commitment to Christ to come unto him. And notice our next move in the service is for all of us to come to him as we, as we approach the table together. So now, let us come to Jesus and receive the rest that he provides. Amen.